0: or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.
1: Rishi Sunak held an emergency press conference on Wednesday afternoon announcing a rollback of some of the government's net zero targets.
0: If we continue down this path, we risk losing the consent of the British people.
1: He may be hoping to claw back a few votes, but the move has brought a furious reaction from environmentalists and perhaps more surprisingly, criticism from some big businesses. Meanwhile, Keir Starmer has been in Paris this week meeting Emmanuel Macron. We had a very constructive and positive meeting. Could this be the beginning of a very long road back into Europe? I'm Gabby Hinsliff, in for John Harris, and you're listening to Politics Weekly UK for The Guardian. In a minute, we'll be joined by John Henley, the Guardian's Europe correspondent, to discuss developments on the Brexit and European fronts. Uh, But first, let's just try and unpick uh, what's been a big moment really in British climate politics. It's Wednesday afternoon as we're speaking, and we've just heard an emergency press conference, hastily called uh, by Rishi Sunak, where the Prime Minister has confirmed that the government intends to row back on some of their key green targets. Here's uh, some of what he said.
0: Net zero is going to be hard and will require us to change. But in a democracy, we must also be able to scrutinise and debate those changes, many of which are hidden in plain sight in a realistic manner. This debate needs more clarity, not more emotion. The test should be, do we have the fairest credible path to reach net zero by 2050 in a way that brings people with us? Since I've become prime minister, I've examined our plans and I don't think they meet that test. We seem to have defaulted to an approach which will impose unacceptable costs on hard-pressed British families, costs that no one was ever really told about.
1: Joining me now from the Commons is Alita Adu, The Guardian's political correspondent. Hi, Debbie. It's felt like a really dramatic day, but, but what has actually changed when the, when the dust settles? Is it a big policy shift or is it really more of a shift of tone and language? Around climate. I
2: must say, Gabby, we've seen uh, Rishi Sunak starting to crumble. He is clearly extremely desperate to please um, a number of factions within the Conservative Party, and he is very un- unsuccessful in doing so, so far, I must say. So he confirmed that the UK would no longer plan to end the sale of new gas boilers by 2035. He said he pushed back the deadline for selling new petrol and diesel cars by five years to 2035 that he'd no longer require homeowners and landlords to meet energy efficiency targets. All because he's promising to save British households struggling at the moment because of the cost of living crisis, lots of money to stop their bills continuing to spiral ahead of what is going to be quite another you know, difficult period of hunters. Um, but we must remember, Gabby, that this is a prime minister without a mandate. He took the keys to number 10, Um, For a government that was elected on a manifesto that promised to deliver the most ambitious environmental program of any country on earth. Um, So we've now got the Conservative Party looking pretty divided, definitely split in two if not. Into more factions,
1: As you say, very strong reaction from some parts of the Conservative Party, not just Chris Gidmore, you know, Zach Goldsmith, Alec Sharma, you know, lots of people with, with an interest in, in climate policies. Do we know why now? Because it's a slightly odd time to announce a big change of policy when Parliament's just going into recess, you know, MPs can't debate it. The Speaker said, you know, that he would recall Parliament if he if he had the powers because he felt this was an important decision that, you know, needed to be be discussed. And it's only, it's not very long since Michael Gove was saying, you know, oh, don't, you know, don't believe what you read in the papers. The government's absolutely committed to net zero do we think there's been some internal debate about this in cabinet and do we know why you know it's suddenly coming to a head now and what feels like a bit of a scramble really
2: mm. I think for a number of months now and um, I've heard of many conservative MPs desperate for Rishi to sort of lay out a vision for where he sees the party going um, I don't think uh, the party intentionally would have preferred this sort of announcement to have come specifically on the first day of recess when they were trying to get their ideas together ahead of a uh, Conservative Party conference, but more so because uh, it was leaked uh, by a number of disgruntled uh, insiders who felt that this needed to be shared. Um, this isn't looking very good for the party, I would say, uh, you know, from a broader perspective. But I think they may be able to jump on the fact that Labour is not really setting out their stools and being able to promise exactly what they would do differently
1: there's a broader challenge here for labour really isn't there which is you know if, if the tories are going to try and make climate a dividing line going into the election if they're going to try and you know portray labour as the party whose green policy would put your bills up or in hog to just a boil or whatever it is they want to want to say there's a challenge labour which is do they you know hold fast to their line on net zero or are they tempted to kind of trim it and fall in behind what government's saying and do they also want given that the that Businesses complained about the degree of chopping and changing and instability and unpredictability and not knowing what the, what the targets are from one day to the next. You know, does Labour want to contribute to that by reversing a U-turn once it's in power?
2: Yes, I guess it's more of you know what they've been doing so far, holding your cards close to your chest, not saying too much that will allow the Conservatives to jump and start you know, launching some campaigns already. But yes, um I think for Labour the strategy will be to wait as long as possible and as close as possible to uh you know, when the general election is called to start detailing exactly how they'll be saving people money i can assure you we'll be seeing plenty of conflict over these over this issue
1: and possibly another year of it to go thank you very much lita thanks for joining us today thank you so much and if you want more detailed analysis on rishi sunak's announcements you can listen to our sister podcast today in focus where nashi nikbal has been speaking to the guardians Kier and stacy This week, The Guardian launched its new European digital edition to showcase the best of our original journalism about Europe, along with the most relevant of our global news and views. So delighted to be joined from Paris by John Henley, The Guardian's Europe correspondent. Hello, John. Hi, Gabby. Uh, This week, you've published a study looking at the rise of populist and fringe parties in Europe, showing I think a third of European voters now vote for far left, far right or anti-establishment parties. We're going to get into the the sort of origins and causes of of that rise of populism a bit later. But what sort of issues are those parties feeding off? What's, What's given them a foothold, would you say?
3: Well, it's a really complex question. Um, And there's a whole range of issues. Obviously, I think if you wanted to kind of summarise them, it would be a kind of just a growing range of sort of insecurities um, among voters and uh, a feeling of a kind of a lack of control and and a lack of order. Um, And it's this, obviously, that the populist parties, particularly the populist far right is promise. Whether they can deliver it or not is, of course, another matter, but, but that's their promise. And so it's around things like, I mean, uh, the, 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 bit, the original sort of golden triangle of populism and far-right populism was obviously immigration, anti-immigration, anti-Islam, a good dose of Euroscepticism, um, and really strong sense of nationalism and national identity sovereignty, that kind of thing. Um, but that's really expanded lately, over the last sort of decade or so particularly, and you've added to that now economically Insecurity, cost of living crises, that kind of thing. A growing mistrust of the mainstream political parties and of the state um, and of what the state is doing, and that's really been fuelled by COVID um, and, and most recently of all, perhaps um, the the green transition and the cost of the green transition and who's actually going to have to bear it.
1: And talking of exactly that, across Europe, I mean, every government is surely grappling with this idea that that saving the planet might involve sacrifices. It might cost householders money. It might mean personal inconvenience. Is anyone else backtracking or or are we the odd one out on climate?
3: Well, there's certainly the beginnings of a of a green lash, if you like, a kind mm. of backlash against uh, against the green transition and the green agenda. Um, it's stronger in some countries than others. We've seen it really reach uh, a, a peak, uh, certainly mm. sort of earlier this year, uh, late last year, in countries like the Netherlands, of course, like the really huge agricultural produ- world's second biggest agricultural producer, and f- there's a whole new political party there the farmer citizens movement, which actually won provincial elections in February on a platform of of kind of fighting the government's plans to close down farms and buy farmers up to cut nitrogen uh, emissions i mean in germany there 's a similar kind of movement underway really the german car industry obviously hugely powerful has just kind of secured exemptions for it uh, from from the eu 's plan to kind of all new cars sold in europe are are electric by two thousand and thirty five they 've secured exemptions for kind of synthetic fuels so that you know, traditional combustion engines can can be used for a bit longer. There's a similarly a huge row in Germany at the moment over the replacement of gas boilers. So it's definitely really underway. It's something that you know I think every European government is 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 going to have to deal with.
1: And yet there is a sort of push back in the other direction to some extent, isn't there? We've seen, I mean, here in the UK, we've seen the car company Ford, the energy company Eon, all coming out and criticising the government U-turn, saying, you know, well, as businesses, we wanted predictability. We want you to set a target and stick to it. We don't want you to change your mind in the middle of a, a business cycle. You know, I mean, there, there are sort of downsides to governments are dropping and changing and particularly potentially risks to investment, aren't there? Why would you invest in the UK? Why don't you put your car factory in Poland or somewhere else if, if you know, you, you, you can at least have a predictable... Policy field somewhere else.
3: But, I mean, it's just a very, very delicate line for governments to tread. Really, it's a real, it's a real kind of tightrope act. Because what we're talking about here is the, the personal and individual costs of the green transition getting real, you know, and actually beginning to have a kind of a concrete impact on people's lives. Companies um, are ahead of that game and have got one agenda. A lot of people are anxious about it, and as soon as you start to create that sort of anxiety and this sort of feel of well, actually what how is this going to affect me and am I really going to have to get rid of my car and how can I possibly afford to buy a new one and and what's the kind of low transmission zones going to mean for me and all, all these issues that becomes really fertile ground for, for, for the populists.
1: Absolutely especially in a, in a cost of living crisis although I kind of you know to be careful talking about this not to forget there's a whole moral side of the argument, too. I mean, the idea, it can sound in all this kind of talk about, you know, costs and practicalities and and sort of political machinations, the sort of idea of saving the planet or sort of the existential urgency that's facing all of us kind of gets lost. I mean, if you're sitting in, I don't know, on the island of Rhodes and you lost your house to a forest fire this summer, this must all sound... Fairly academic.
3: It's, it's how you put into concrete practice policies that are going to be absolutely essential and are already absolutely essential for the survival of the planet, but are absolutely undeniably going to negatively impact people's day-to-day lives, or at least the kind of the lifestyles and the standard of living that, that they've grown accustomed to. Uh, that's, that's the nub of the problem, I think, and for, for all political parties. And there are some that are going to be responsible about it um, and some that are just going to see it as, a, as an opportunity um, to, to rally support um, and, and galvanise support for, for, for their agenda.
1: Just To backtrack for a, a minute here, I mean, you've said, and you know, it, it, I think we're all seeing the way in which, um, sort of resentment about net zero and the cost of net zero provides fertile ground for, for populists to exploit, but obviously, the rise of populism predates all that. This kind of distrust, this underpinning disillusionment with mainstream politics that sort of you know is the, is the, the wellspring from which it, which it comes, where do you think that originally comes from? Because, in a way, I seem sort of Almost unsurprisingly, conventional politics has arguably failed to solve some really big issues over the last 10 to 15 years. You can kind of see why, um, where that disillusionment sets in.
3: I mean, I think if you talk to political scientists, their view is that there's basically been a kind of a breakdown of of, of multiple consensuses um, among electorates all over the continent, really. And there's been a breakdown of the kind of cultural consensus, a broad cultural consensus that arguably started with with nine eleven. Um, there's been a breakdown of the sort of economic consensus, um, which, which began arguably with the great financial and economic crisis that started in Europe in 2008. Um, and then more recently, um, there's been a real breakdown of the kind of European and what is Europe and what are we here for and, and, and how do we make it work consensus, which, which began with, the, the great migration crisis of, of 2015 when well over a million migrants arrived in Europe um, and and you know continued with brexit so there's a lot of these kind of big you know um, societal consent breakdowns that have that have kind of been happening and I think it's and you're, you're absolutely right it's completely fair to say that the mainstream center right and center left parties these big kind of umbrella catch-all parties, Um, that kind of try to represent everybody um, and have essentially run most European countries um, in alternation since the end of the Second World War, they really haven't adjusted um, and they haven't adapted and they haven't responded. Um, And so there's just a growing perception among voters that as one of the political scientists that I spoke to puts it, um, that these big mainstream parties have basically become Office-seeking organisations and only office-seeking organisations. They they don't really look beyond that.
1: In the UK, obviously, we we haven't had you know fringe parties getting seats in parliament as you have in lots of other European countries. Presumably, primarily because of first past the post, it's difficult for new parties to break through here. You kind of think that in twenty fifteen, if we'd had PR here, we'd probably have got Nigel Farage as an MP. But instead, of course, we just we to an extent, got the faragification of the Conservative Party. You know, it moves to the right to kind of almost absorb that 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 populist instinct. I think in the study you're reporting on, they genuinely considered sort of classifying the Tories as a an ex- sort of fringe populist party. Is that right? Rather than a, the mainstream one?
3: Yes, that's absolutely right. Um, and they considered it with several mainstream European parties, actually. And, and what they've really seen is that, you know, if, if the kind of, um, you know, the gap between the far right and the centre right has shrunk in recent years. It's much less because the far right has become less radical and much more because the centre right has become more radical. Um, and so if you look, I mean, certainly from a continental perspective, if you look at a party like the Tories and the, and the, the current government, current Tory government in, in Britain, I mean, on several policy areas, um, it's it's a radical right party, um, you know, and it's also a populist radical right party. As soon as you start talking about railing against lefty lawyers, as soon as you start coming up with plans to ship kind of, you know, hundreds or thousands of uh, asylum seekers and, and and migrants to Rwanda to be processed. I mean, you're firmly in the kind of territory that in, in the EU would make someone like Marine Le Pen Blush as the centre right has kind of adopted uh, far right uh, discourse. The far right has become normalised um, in in political life in society, but certainly on certainly on the media. And, and what's really increased is not so not necessarily the kind of core vote of the populist far right, but the tolerance, the kind of popular tolerance for the the, the the populist far right.
1: Okay, let's pause here for a minute. And when we come back, we'll be looking at the future for Britain in Europe, and whether Labour might be intending to play their cards very differently to the Conservatives if they win office. <music>
0: Hello, I'm Grace Dent. I'm back and I've been busy. My new book, Comfort Eating, which is based on our award-winning podcast, is out now. You can get hold of it at guardianbookshop.com. And from Tuesday, the podcast is returning for its next season with an exciting lineup including Shirley Ballas, Bridget Christie, Jamie Demetrio, and many more. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to join me on book tour, I'll be in London on the 9th of October and in Manchester on the 11th talking about my go-to comfort foods and a lot more. Get your tickets today from membership.theguardian.com forward slash events. I can't wait to see you there. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down so to help us we brought in a reverse auctioneer which is apparently a thing mint mobile unlimited premium wireless ready to get 30 30 bit to get 30 ready to get 20 20 20 to get 20 20 to get 15 15 15 15 just 15 bucks a month so give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch
1: 45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees promote for new customers for limited time unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows full terms at mintmobile.com
0: finding your perfect home was hard but thanks to burrow furnishing it has never been easier
1: Welcome back. So Keir Starmer has been in Paris this week to meet Emmanuel Macron in a trip clearly designed to present him as a kind of PM in waiting, someone world leaders are queuing up to meet. Um, it's a big change from Liz Truss, obviously saying she couldn't say whether Macron was our friend or our foe. But John, what do they, they make of him in Paris? I mean, does anyone, does anyone if you stopped a sort of stranger on the street tomorrow, would they have a clue who Keir Starmer was?
3: Um... Probably not, um, but that's probably not that unusual. I'm not sure how many of your, of your French men and women in the street would recognise very many foreign politicians. They certainly recognise Boris Johnson, uh, which oh, great.
1: is why <laughs> great that's our image abroad. Thank you. <laughs>
3: well, uh, which which is why Car- Starmer's visit is welcome, at least on one level, which is as a sign of the continuing improvement in in Franco-British. Relations, which really hit rock bottom during the Johnson and Trust years. You know, I mean, uh, Johnson was just considered as a, as a sort of populist, dishonest, self seeking joker in, in Paris who you couldn't take seriously and you couldn't trust. Uh, Macron is always keen to meet. Starmer is very far from the first op- European opposition. Politician that he's met, he's always keen to keen to kind of keep his ears on the ground and stay in touch with you know what what might be coming up. Um, and obviously, Starmer is looking for uh, you know to sort to, to, to sort of um, raise as much influence as he as he possibly can in in Europe. And and France is is inevitably the best place to start with that for for a British politician.
1: Back in the days when I used to have to go to EU summits a lot as a reporter, I'd always kind of try and go to the. French media briefing and the British media briefing after it because you'd always get a totally, you know, the British would be all about how we trumped the Treacherous French in X deal, and the French side would be all about how he screwed the British. Um, here, the briefing has been that that the sort of talks were warm and engaged, um, but that they didn't go into any detail really on on Brexit or immigration or anything like that. Is that also the the readout on your side?
3: Yes, pretty much. I mean, there was nothing detailed here, and I don't think anybody expected it. It was a bit of a sort of a meet and greet and a handshake opportunity and a kind of get to know know each other. Obviously, we don't know. We're not privy to what what the conversation was between. Macron and Starmer, but just sort of speaking generally, you know, I mean Macron can't do anything on immigration without the EU. That's it's an, it's an EU sort of policy decision. And the EU generally has more than enough on its plate, only in terms of immigration. I mean, if you look this, you know, this this past weekend, Giorgio Maloney, the Italian Prime Minister, and and, and Ursula von der Leyen, the, the, the Commission president, were in Lampedusa, which is a you know a, a very small Italian. Island, a couple of hundred kilometers from Tunisia, which has 5,000 inhabitants, and over the course of three days late last week uh, saw the arrival of 7,000 migrants. So, more than the population of the island. My, immigration is a massive issue in Europe. The EU is deeply divided over. You have the, you know, the kind of frontier countries, Spain and Greece and Italy, who, who, who have to deal with the, with the brunt of the arrival. Um, you have wealthier northern countries, which is where most of those arrivals want to get to, but they don't particularly want them to come. You have Eastern European countries, Central European countries, Hungary and Poland, who are absolutely, you know, flat out opposed to accepting any new relocations. I mean, it's a huge issue in Europe. And if anybody in Britain, frankly, I'm sorry, sorry to sound a bit kind of, you know, outspoken about this, but if anybody in Britain, frankly, thinks that given that situation and given all the other issues that it has to cope with, the issue of expan- keep maintaining unity over the war in Ukraine, eventual expansion to the East to include Ukraine, I mean, there's so much on the eu 's plate that if anybody thinks that they 're going to accord kind of any sort of special treatment to a country that only a couple of years ago voted to leave the eu um, i mean it 's not so much that they don 't really want to it 's just that there 's not the bandwidth to do it there just mm. isn't there isn 't the interest there isn 't the scope and I think generally speaking. If, if Starmer is uh, elected and does become British prime minister, I mean, I think the bottom line for me actually is that the overwhelming impression from the continent is that actually neither party is yet being honest. With British voters about what Brexit actually means, about what kind of relationship with Europe is going to be possible in the future, about what kind of asks are realistic and might be entertained, about what Britain will actually, is it actually economically going to need to do? Nobody is really yet spelling that out for so very understandable kind of political reasons.
1: I mean, I was going to say there must be some awareness, you know, in, realistically, in Brussels, that there's an election coming up in years time, that you might not get a great deal of sense out of British politicians about Brexit until the other side of, of that election. That you know, really, these these are the sort of very early stages of the. Of the
3: game, uh, of course that's right, and of course there is that understanding, and of course Peter Brussels and and the, and the EU capitals understand that that you know both sets of politicians in the UK are are talking to their to their home audience, but you know given. Um, the record of the past sort of five six seven years that there, there's a very much a kind of wait and see and I think beyond that um, I think there's a the, the sort of overriding sentiment in in Brussels and in the capitals is that it's they don't have the time or the space or the inclination to kind of tinker around the edges you know there might be small discrete individual gains. Um, and and win, win-wins win for sort of both sides that, that might be achieved. Like so the for Horizon programme. Yeah, there's certainly no inclination to open up, you know, the trade and cooperation agreement to really kind of dig into the guts of, of you know, veterinary inspections and, and, and trade, you know, that kind of stuff. Honestly, I think it will take some kind of really big gesture on the part of the UK that recognises, this is the crucial thing, I think, that recognises that whatever the UK demands in future, there has to be something in it for
1: Europe. That's the one thing that domestically Keir Starmer cannot say, no, because can't already exactly. you have the government saying, oh, yeah. he wants to unpick the Brexit deal. He's going to take exactly. Brexit away. And from I him. think
3: anything short of Britain re-entering the single market and the customs union at the moment in Brussels is, is considered probably to be not worth the candle.
1: It's almost like you're saying, John, that the world does not revolve around the UK. I mean, you know, I just throw that out there as a, as a thought. Could it be that, um, that we are not in fact the be-all and end-all
3: uh, you might relations. possibly say that. <laughs> I think that is one of the things that you see uh, when you're when you're based on the continent. The, the, the absolutely I don't think it's unique to Britain, but it's very, very powerful in Britain. The, 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 the British prism, the Anglo-British prism through which Britain views the world is um, is exceptionally powerful and and at sometimes at sometimes very distorting.
1: Well, it's goodbye from this small, rainy, insignificant island. And uh, thank you very much, John, for joining us. Pleasure. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, please make sure you subscribe to Politics Weekly UK wherever you get your podcasts. And even better, leave us a review, maybe even a nice one. And before you go, can I just tell you about Grace Dent, who will be returning with the Guardian's podcast Comfort Eating on the 26th of September. She'll be taking celebrity guests down memory lanes talking about their most memorable food moments. And guests this series include John Ronson, Nadia Hussein, and Shirley Ballas. Back from Tuesday, 26th of September, listen wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was produced by Frankie Toby, music by Axel Cacoutier. The executive producers are Maz Ebtehaj and Nicole Jackson.